Where do you find fulfilment? Where do you seek satisfaction? Those are very difficult questions to be considering on a Sunday morning, but they're definitely questions that are worth thinking about. You can learn a great deal about the person when you know the answer to these questions. You see, I believe that the source of our satisfaction defines us. It shapes the pattern of our lives. Some might draw satisfaction from their job, from their work. It's usually easy to spot these people because all they ever talk about is work. I'm certainly not one of those. Some people draw satisfaction from their homes. And these people are relatively easy to spot as well because when you visit their house, it's normally immaculate, pristine, cream walls, beautiful carpets, homes that wouldn't look out of place as a show home on a development. I'm certainly not one of those either. (laughs) Others might draw satisfaction from food. These people are often marked out by a slightly rotund appearance. They might have lots of Delia Smith or Mary Berry cookbooks scattered around the place, plus an enviable collection of pots and pans. I might be veering towards that. But I suppose if someone was to study me closely, they might think that I derive satisfaction from gadgets. I'm usually carrying the latest iPhone plus an Apple Watch and can bore for England about the latest in technology. It's not something I'm particularly proud about, but there you are. So if someone was to study you, what might they think is the source of your satisfaction? Would they be able to pinpoint the one thing in your life that gives you the greatest satisfaction? I wonder if someone studied any one of us here today, if they would deduce that we derive satisfaction from a relationship with Jesus Christ. I wonder if we ourselves think that we derive satisfaction from knowing Jesus, from having a relationship with him. This is what I like to think about this morning as we study God's word together. And it might be useful to have that gospel reading open in front of you at John chapter 6 verses 24 as we proceed. I'm going to try and cover three interconnected points this morning. And these are refocusing our desires, what must we do, and Jesus, our eternal satisfaction. So let's get straight on with our first point then, refocusing our desires. As you know, I am a teacher by trade and I teach in a pretty posh London prep school. The school has many pupils from the wealthiest end of our society. The road outside our school at picking up time is full of Teslas, expensive customised Range Rovers, Bentleys and Ferraris. Many of our pupils, even as we speak, will be holidaying in multi-million pound foreign homes or relaxing in the most exclusive resorts around the world. And you know what? Good for them, I say. The people who send their children to my school have worked incredibly hard throughout school, through university and through their professional lives to earn the money that pays for their expensive lifestyles. What does concern me, though, is that for some people, the quest for more and more money, for flashier cars, for more homes, for the best holidays money can buy, that becomes the whole focus of their existence. This quest for more and better stuff becomes their primary desire. 
They invest in big houses and fancy cars because they think that this is where they will find satisfaction. And it is this pursuit of bigger and better stuff, whatever the cost, that shapes the pattern of their lives and defines them. I guess if I wanted to be slightly cruel, you could define them as brazen materialists. In our reading from John's Gospel today, we encounter Jesus soon after he had fed 5,000 people with just five small barley loaves and two small fish. Actually, 5,000 is probably a bit of an underestimate because as we see in John chapter 6, verse 10, that number includes only the men. It doesn't include the women and the children. So that number might have been three times, possibly even larger than is recorded in the text. This same crowd we see in verses 24 and 25 of this morning's reading were trying to find Jesus. They were a little confused to find Jesus in Capernaum, since whilst the disciples have been seen getting into a boat to cross the lake, Jesus has opted for the slightly less traditional method of crossing the lake on foot. Somewhat unusual. Jesus is quick to reprimand his audience, surprisingly, who are probably Jewish and more than likely at this point being addressed by Jesus in the synagogue. They've been looking for him. And he tells them in verse 26 they've been looking for him, essentially because he provided them with a free meal. They ate the loaves and the fish by the lake until they were satisfied. Their earthly needs had been satisfied by Jesus, and they were happy. They'd found, uh, they'd found satisfaction in having their physical hunger satiated. And they're following Jesus, therefore, because they see him as the provider of free food, and they hope that he will continue to be their meal ticket. They hope, and indeed expect, that he will continue to satisfy their physical needs. At a simplistic level, if we are to define this crowd based on the source of their satisfaction, you could say that they like to have full bellies at no cost. Perhaps not unreasonable. But they've lost sight of who Jesus is as a consequence of the de- their desire that he gives them free food. The crowd have completely misunderstood the point of Jesus being present amongst them. As the biblical commentator William Barclay puts it, it is as if Jesus said, you cannot think of your souls for thinking about your stomachs. Jesus doesn't tell his audience that they are wrong to hunger for food. He knows that this is a perfectly reasonable desire. He doesn't rebuke them for looking for satisfaction in earthly terms, but he does want them to think very, very carefully about their life priorities. You see, when we focus solely on earthly satisfaction, we lose sight of our spiritual identity. In verse 27, Jesus tells the assembled throng, and through them he tells us, that we should not work for food that spoils, for food that will satisfy our hunger briefly, but leaves us wanting in due course. He tells us that we should work for food instead that endures to eternal life. Now, sometimes if I work late, I pop into McDonald's for a quick burger before getting the train back home. Now, whilst I might buy the biggest, juiciest burger that McDonald's has to offer, by the time I get home about an hour later, guess what? I'm hungry again. McDonald's never seems to satisfy my hunger for more than an hour. 
that's actually quite a good metaphor for the point that Jesus is trying to make here. Whatever we find ourselves craving, wherever we derive our satisfaction, whether it's food, cars, homes, gadgets, a relationship, children, once we have them, our craving continues. We're not satisfied. These things might temporarily satisfy us, but soon we'll hunger for something else. The Buddhists actually have a word for this. They call this craving tana, and they believe that tana, or craving, is responsible for all of the suffering in the world. It stands to reason, therefore, in their belief at least, that if you can end craving, if you can eliminate all craving from the world, then all suffering will end. On one level, that sounds absolutely great. It sounds brilliant. But one of the reasons I'm standing here today, and not in a a practicing Buddhist, is because I happen to believe that they're wrong. Sounds great, but I don't see how it is possible to end craving. Jesus understands that craving is a human emotion. Show me a person who doesn't crave, who doesn't have desires of any kind, and I'll show you a dead person. Jesus' approach is rather different. He doesn't tell us to end our craving, to stop having desires, to stop looking for things that provide us with satisfaction. He knows that's a fundamental part of being a human. Instead, he tells us to focus our craving appropriately. We need to focus our craving, our quest for satisfaction and fulfilment in him. Instead of trying to find satisfaction in earthly things that spoil, we should seek satisfaction in food that does not spoil, in food that endures to eternal life. The source of this food is Jesus, as he makes clear in verse 27. Jesus withholds absolutely nothing from us, and he will gladly give us this eternal food if we just ask him to. He is able to grant this food because he is the one on whom God has placed his seal of approval. There's nothing wrong with drawing satisfaction from earthly things whether that be food, cars, jobs or houses or whatever. But we must ensure that these things do not become our primary source of satisfaction. We must be sure that these things aren't what defines us, what defines our lives. If they do, ultimately, we will remain unsatisfied, we will remain unfulfilled. We won't be able to shake off that feeling that all of us at some point experience in our lives, that feeling of emptiness. If we only find real satisfaction in the food that Jesus will give us, we should refocus our desires instead on him. We must turn to him and make him our primary source of satisfaction. On to our second point then, which is, what must we do? It's great that Jesus will provide us with food that endures to eternal life, but how should we respond to that? Funnily enough, this is exactly what the crowd asks Jesus in verse 28. What must we do to do the works God requires, they ask. How can we work for food that endures, for satisfaction not just in the here and now, but eternally? Well, the crowd presumably expects a list of rules and regulations akin to the Ten Commandments given to Moses. But Jesus surprises his audience. He doesn't provide them with ethical codes or laws that can be ignored, circumvented or broken. Instead, he tells them that the work of God is simply to believe in the one he has sent. The work of God is this, Jesus says in verse 29, 
to believe in the one he has sent. Well, what does it mean to believe in the one that God has sent? Believing in Jesus means believing his claims. It means trusting in him. Trusting that he was sent by God, that he is the son of God, that he died to pay the price for the sins of the world. That he rose again three days later, that he dwells at the right hand of God the Father, and believing that he's opened the way to eternal life for all of those who believe. Believing in Jesus is not simply about giving lip service, about saying, yes, I believe in Jesus. Genuine belief in Jesus, rather, is transformational. If we believe in the one who God sent, our lives will be transformed because our desires, our appetites will be redirected. Our priorities in life will not be about short-term resolutions to our temporary appetites, but they will instead take on an eternal perspective. If we are to progress beyond empty statements of Jesus' identity, if we are genuinely to believe in him, we need to know him. We need to meet him in his words, the Bible. We need to spend time in prayer, listening to him and sharing our concerns with him. We need to understand his character, his priorities. We need to strive to emulate him as closely as we are able. We need to look at his concerns. Jesus was concerned about the lost. He was concerned about the sick. He was concerned about the outcasts. He brought light into the darkness of the world. He brought love where there was hatred. Well, it seems to me that we live in a period in history where sometimes it feels like darkness and hatred might prevail. I'm sure that every successive generation feels this, but I'm increasingly concerned about the self-centeredness of the Western world, whether it's the narcissism of social media or whether it's countries putting up borders, literal or metaphorical, to keep anyone other out. It feels like loving one another, the second of Jesus' greatest commandments, often seems to be sidelined. Believing in Jesus should spur us on to want to stand out in the world as agents of love, as agents of light. If we share Christ's priorities, we too will share his concern for the lost, the sick and the outcasts. We too will want to support the weak, the frail and the sick. We too will want to look after the widows and the orphans. Ultimately, we will want to show the world that we have discovered that there is another way to live, a more enduring source of satisfaction, hope of eternal life with Christ himself. Of course, believing is hard. Many will find the idea of believing in something that they cannot see to be intolerably difficult. Many will think that it's impossible some will say that it's a nonsense. But verse 30 actually shows that the crowd listening to Jesus struggled with this notion themselves. Give us proof, they demand. If you are the one sent by God, give us a sign. If you give us a sign, then we'll believe. Funnily enough, funnily enough these people had just been given a sign. As we know, they just witnessed Jesus feed 5,000 men, plus women and children, with five small barley loaves and two small fish. I don't know about you, but I would regard that as a pretty strong sign of Jesus' divinity. But just one more sign they implore, then we'll believe. I wonder how many of us fall into that trap. I wonder how many of us lose out on the life 
that God would have us live simply because we are looking for more evidence of Christ's identity. More evidence, please. If you give us more evidence, God, then we'll trust in you. Then we'll follow you. How easy it would be to miss our calling simply because we wanted more evidence. There comes a point, though, where having weighed up the evidence, we must take a step of faith. We must take a step of faith to trust that Jesus is the one sent by God. We must take a step of faith to follow Jesus. We must take a step of faith to live the life that God has set out for us. Because sooner or later, it will be too late. Our earthly lives are finite, measured, if we're lucky, in years. Yet the eternal existence that we're promised, by definition, lasts forever. What a shame it would be if we missed that boat. What must we do? We must believe in the one who God has sent. On to our third point then, the bread of life. This one's shorter, I promise you. We must believe in the one who God has sent because he is the bread of life who provides eternal satisfaction. We've seen in verse 30 that the crowd asked Jesus for a sign so that they might see and believe him. In verse 31, they spoke of their ancestors who were given manna in the wilderness. We read about this in our reading from Exodus this morning. Stuck out in the desert, God had given them bread to eat. They wanted Jesus to make bread come down from heaven as they believed Moses had, so that they might believe in his identity. He answers them by saying that it is God who gives true bread from heaven, bread that gives life to the world. This seems like an appealing prospect to the crowd, who demand that Jesus always gives them this bread. Jesus responds with one of the great I am declarations, one of the declarations that mirrors the declaration that God himself gave to Moses in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them in verse 35. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Well, here then is the source of genuine satisfaction. Whilst the fulfilment of our earthly desires will only be temporary, Jesus provides eternal satisfaction. Only by turning to Christ and believing in him will we find true satisfaction. If we look at verse 32 and verse 35 together, we see that Jesus comes from heaven. He was given to us by his Father. Jesus is the fulfilment of God's redemptive plan for the world, the one whom the Jewish people had been waiting for, the one whom the Old Testament points towards. Here is God himself, the word become flesh, dwelling amongst his created people, giving those who believe in his name the right to become children of God, as God stated, as John stated at the beginning of his gospel. Jesus, the bread of God, the bread that comes down from heaven, gives life to the world, Jesus says in verse 34. Ever since the fall, humans have dwelt in sin and death. Throughout disobedience, as a consequence of our turning from God, death has become part of of our human experience. A significant part too. We've all experienced death through the death of loved ones who we were close to. We've all experienced grief that accompanies the passing of someone that we loved. This is the reality 
of human existence. Jesus, though, comes to bring life. He brings the hope that even that if we turn to him, if we accept him as our saviour, earthly death is not the end. It's just the beginning. Just as Jesus rose from the dead to dwell with his father in heaven, the same will be true for us too. We too will be raised to life after death. What's more, Jesus affirms that this offer of life isn't restricted. He gives life to the world, he says in verse 33. His offer of forgiveness of eternal life isn't limited to those of a certain lineage or nationality or caste or creed or status. He gives life to the world. His offer of forgiveness is open to everyone. Anyone can turn to Christ and be forgiven. Anyone who calls on the name of Christ can find eternal satisfaction dwelling with Christ in God's new creation. This is reiterated in verse 35 when Jesus says that whoever comes to him will never go hungry, that whoever believes in him will never be thirsty. Whoever you are, Christ offers eternal satisfaction, eternal fulfilment. Jesus brings satisfaction in ways that nothing else can. If we come to him, we will never go hungry, he says. If we come to him, we will never be thirsty. So the question is, where will we seek fulfilment? Where will we find our satisfaction? Will we look to the world to address our cravings? Or will we turn to Christ, the bread of life, who offers eternal fulfilment and satisfaction? If the source of our satisfaction defines us, if it shapes the pattern of our lives, will we allow ourselves to be shaped by the bread of life, by Jesus? Let's all strive to refocus our desires and cultivate a genuine, life-changing belief in Jesus, trusting that he is the bread of life. If we draw our satisfaction from a relationship with Christ, then we will have found a source of satisfaction that doesn't spoil, but endures to eternal life.